Good morning, everybody. It gives me very great pleasure to be here. Excuse me if I'm a little bit croaky. I seem to have picked up that awful lurgy. Um, I'm very proud to be cheering this um, extraordinarily distinguished panel, All Women, today. Um, on my far right, we have Jacqueline Milner, who's a writer, academic, and critic. Um, Stephanie Rosenthal, who I hope needs no introduction to you because she is, of course, the artistic director of this year's Sydney Biennale and a curator, chief curator from the Hayward Gallery in London. And last but certainly not least, we have Justine Williams, who is an artist and indeed exhibiting in this year's Biennale and has some wonderful works, in fact, in the MCA's collection. Um, it's particularly exciting to be in this building, of course, uh, this extraordinary building of the Opera House, which I have the great good fortune to look at every day out of my window. Um, trivial fact to start us off, the MCA Maritime Services building was completed in the same decade that the Opera House was started. Interesting, isn't it, when you look at the two different styles. So we're talking about timelessness today, and that's in reference to architecture, but where do we stand in relation to art? Um, what has happened with audiences? We know that in the past 10 years, audiences for contemporary art have um, risen exponentially right across the world. Uh, it's not so long ago that the MCA was described as a venue for wankers. It was also described as a great gallery that no one goes to, and a good gallery but a shame about the art. All within the last uh, probably 12 or 15 years. Now, of course, the MCA regularly attracts visitors from all backgrounds. And indeed, last year, we hit over a million visitors for the first time. So what is going on? Is contemporary art timeless? Can it be timeless? And what implications does that have for the practice of art and indeed for its relationship to audience? We thought we'd kick off this session this morning by asking each of our panellists to talk a little bit about a work of art in relationship to the theme, perhaps an encounter they've had with art. So I'm going to begin by asking Jacqueline to tell us about her encounter with a work of art. Yeah, we were talking earlier about how difficult it is to choose, actually, yeah, from our experiences with art, one particular experience to talk about. But I've decided to talk about one um, particular experience and, and particular work of art because this, the reaction that I had was highly unanticipated and unusual for me and for, I think for many gallery goers. So just to set the scene, um, it was actually about 10 years ago, it was uh, the, opening, uh, the opening weekend of the Gallery of Modern Art in Brisbane. Many, perhaps some of you have been there. And uh, there was a lot of very spectacular work on show, um, but I managed to be walking past this, you know, it was almost like a foyer space in front of the lifts and there was a, a little video monitor about this size on a plinth. And I was walking past and, you know, heading towards the next spectacular work. Uh, and I stopped for a moment and, and I was just transfixed. And I ended up standing there and just, I guess, to set the scene, this monitor was in a space that wasn't um, darkened because a lot of video space kind of, a lot of video projections actually uh, heighten the viewer experience by having it in a, in a, you know, in a blocked off space uh, where the lights are very low to sort of, to give you that sense of immersion. Well, this was just in daylight. Um, so all the more extraordinary that I should be transfixed by it. And also it was quite a long piece. It, end, it ends up actually being 21 minutes. So I was standing there in front of this video monitor, transfixed. And um, the, the experience that I had is that I, I broke down in sobs. Uh, 
Now, that, that is actually considered quite a, an unusual experience for contemporary art. I mean, it's something that I think we associate much more readily with going to the cinema. Uh, music often, you know, makes us cry much more readily than, than, does, uh, than does contemporary art. And there's an interesting book, actually, by um, an, an art uh, theorist called James Elkins called Pictures and Tears that talks specifically about this because he's talking about the intensity and how we judge the intensity of our experiences with contemporary art and how... how how um, infrequent it is that we actually cry in front of pictures. So I'll leave you to think about that a moment. So the work that I was looking at was actually a video work by an Australian artist called Tracy Moffat, and the work was called Love. And the work actually, just to give you a bit of an explanation, some of you may be familiar with that, um, that aspect of, of Tracy Moffat's practice, who's best known perhaps as a photographer. But for several years now, she's been doing these quite intricate collaborations with a, with a friend who's a video editor, but also uh, an amazing collector of films. And this, this work, Love, um, which I'll describe to you in a moment, uh, actually predates YouTube, of course. So that's the, the beauty of it is actually it was made by reference to somebody's film library before the age of YouTube. So she collaborates with Gary Hilberg, and this work um, actually features um, excerpts from over 200 films over a period, made over a period of 50 years, and most of them are kind of Hollywood films. And the... the the, um, the particular kind of art of the film, I suppose, is the fact that she and Gary together have chosen these excerpts and constructed a, a, a narrative arc about how love, in a sense, is represented in that Hollywood stereotype, if you like. So the film starts off with the soundtrack of love is a many splendid thing, that some of you might know, and, and uh, it starts off with, uh, with the first encounter and the loving looks and the embrace, and, and gradually the, the excerpt starts to tell a very different story as the relationships start to fall into dysfunction and into you know, quite extreme gender stereotypes and uh, the, the abuse and the violence eventually denigrates into full kind of blown gun-loaded violence. And, um, so, and throughout this arc, um, it starts off with the, with the love and the many splendid thing, but the narrative is kept going by an, another kind of like soundtrack that starts to build up towards this climax where eventually, and all these scenes, remember, are from actual films where the, the protagonists are actually shooting each other. And, and so I broke down. I, I couldn't stop. I was transfixed, but I was sobbing as well. And I was on my own, and I was asking myself, why, why am I crying? Why am I crying? Um, is, it, is it empathy that I feel for both them? I mean, you can imagine the majority of the violence was actually directed towards the female characters in this, and most of the relationships that were represented were heterosexual relationships. Um, most of the violence was directed against the female protagonist, and I was thinking, am I feeling the empathy for the female characters? Is that where the grief is coming from? Am I feeling the, the empathy also for the male characters that are trapped in this kind of stereotypical exchange and cannot seem to get out of it? Uh, am I feeling like outrage and anger that this is the state of the world that we live in and, and it's being represented in, this, in, uh, in the cinema? that forms such an important part of our, uh, of our culture and, and becomes kind of our cultural touchstones. You know, and am, am I feeling sorrow and grief that it seems so intractable? And all these things, uh, these uh, very intense emotions, were made possible by, by this particular work of art that brought together in such a an, smart and such a, a compelling way the, the cultural forces, I suppose, that underlie much of our, our cultural, st of our gender stereotypes. 
And, and I was thinking what, you know, what an amazing achievement it is in 21 minutes to be able to, to make an argument like this that would probably take thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of, of kind of analytical words, if you like. So the power of the artwork was its ability to arrest me, uh, to, to um, stimulate my senses in an incredibly intense way and to in a really you know, complex range of, of emotions, to do it in, 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 a, in a space that is so, in a, in a sense, so limited, uh, and to stay with me for years and years and years. So for me, that work has been truly timeless in the sense that it was able to, to affect a really incisive cultural critique um, and something that has stayed with me and, and many of the other, you know, um, viewers that I speak to about it. We'll come back to that in a minute, but it does strike me that you, you prefaced your comments by saying that we, are, we, we often respond in different ways and in a more emotional way, I guess, to music and mm. to film. And in fact, that work is precisely the same. It is mm. music and it is mm. film. Um, let's hold that thought for a second and ask Stephanie, because I suspect you might have a very different work of art to tell us about. But now I'm thinking, what work made me cry the last? <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah, it's a good question. question yeah. yeah, we can discuss that maybe <laughs> after. So um, I've, I thought I'd talk about two different things. One, an artwork, which is really important for me and I think my work, and then an experience of a show, what I feel is a relevant show for maybe our discussion we, we talk about in the sense of time, timeless. So the, the work, the artwork, which is always been important for me is um, Kazimir Malevich Black Square on a White Ground from 1915 um, for different reasons. And I remember the, the first time I thought about it was when uh, I was having, we have the, had these dinners and there was always this one question coming up, what work, and we were all not collecting. So as a curator, I always had that um, kind of thought that I shouldn't collect works just because I think it's interfering with you know, the market and the art showing for me should be very different. So I never collected. So, but I always liked this question of what would be the one work if you would have whatever resources uh. you have, you'd like to have to, you like to have to live with. And so it was for me either an Ed Reinhardt black painting or Kazimir Malevich because both I felt I could look at and they would look at, they would look different every time I look at them just because I think the color black it does change in itself, because it has all its colours in it. But conceptually, it's an important work for me because I feel whenever you look at it, every, you know, every 10 years, it can, it can tell you something else. And so the black square for me was for, for a very long time about the, the other night. So an expression which is not related to the time night, but the other night as a space where you don't know where to go. And that was, for me, the biggest space of inspiration. So when you're in, when you imagine a space where you know there are lots of doors, but you literally don't know which door you'd want to take. So that to give yourself the realm to not know the next thing, I think allows you to do something different or something you might have not imagined before. Mm. Um, and then at some point, and that's why the Black Square became quite important now for the Biennale, was that I suddenly thought, what if this idea of Kazimir Valevich, the fourth dimension, the kind of other realm, the endless realm, is actually 
you know, he might have talked about this already early in the 20th century, what, what is our internet? The thing of, that there is this, end, this imagination of, there is this endless realm which connects things in a way. So there's this famous um, television series in England which is called Charlie Brooker. It's, it's char from Charlie Brooker, it's called The Black Mirror. Black Mirror. And so it is the Black Mirror we're looking in all the time, the, the phones, the iPads, the computers, and, and what do we see? And it's an amazing series which kind of really unravels society, I think, in a quite um, unsettling way of how we're related to, these, to, the, to this technology. But so the Black Square has always been something which I feel I could always go back and be newly inspired and reading about the ideas Kazimir Malevich had in relation with them, I thought that was, that was quite exciting. And just now, over Christmas, or before Christmas, there was this article, I read in The Guardian, but there were lots of other uh, more kind of, I think, deeper thoughts around it, that they found a quote on the white frame of, of the black oh. square, mm. which um, was then read as a kind of racist comment, um, which was like, um, Negroes in a cave. And so that, and that's something which struck me a lot, and I, I'm still puzzled, so I'll talk to lots of experts about it, because I, it really means he had thought about a figurative thing. I mean, he was using, it's not quite clear if he really wrote it on it, but it's obviously a racist comment now, a kind of comment. But then, of course, it came in a time where that wasn't, you know, so unusual to talk like that. So I think there's all these different layers. So again, I feel it would be a new show to kind of think about what mm. does that actually mean mm. that he mm. overpainted or, mm. um, you know, that he was thinking of a figurative work. And then mm. also this thing of that it's always about jokes. You know, they might have just sit together having a beer in the studio yeah. or wine and just kind of... That was the How thing. do you describe black? Yeah, Negroes exactly. fighting yeah. in a cave. But it, it does reference a 19th century painting, yeah, which is precisely that, which is about the whole idea of... So it could just have been an interpretation of mm. what it means to be black, which at the time would have been read very differently from how we would read it now. And again, the not seeing, which yeah. is something Whistler would talk a lot about in his kind yeah. of nocturnes, yeah. you know, the kind yeah. of the not being able yeah. to see if you're... Or, or to see what's what you're describing you. is so interesting in terms of the debate about the audience, because what you're grasping what you're grappling with is this thing about the unknown. And I find in my, in, in my career that the question I'm always asked is, what does it mean? And I think for curators, the question is always to throw it back to the audience and say, well, what does it mean to you? What is your response? What is your, you know, what is your, what is your relationship to this work? Rather than trying to work out always what it means in a sort of, you know, a sort of definitive sense. Mm -hmm. But that idea of a response is, is incredibly important, which is, what I think, what you're describing, Stephanie. And so the, the show I wanted to mention is a show where I felt a question or a problem which I tried to solve for years was kind of solved in a, in a really brilliant way, and that's the question of how can, you, how can you show performances or the history of performances in um, exhibitions? And that's always been something I've been interested in because I think performance became my interest again because I was interested in ephemeral work, in works which aren't objects, which is mm. obviously also, again, a sign, somehow like a resistance to be involved with the art market or kind of trying to, to stay away from it as much as possible. And so I got involved in trying to understand how can a public institution like the Hayward Gallery or the House of Kunst, where I was working before, could show performances in a way that 
it is relevant, it doesn't feel like a restaging. Mm -hmm. And so it's an exhibition which happened in a, in a private institution in London, Raven Raw, um, and it was a, an exhibition with Yvonne Reiner about Yvonne Reiner's work, who's a dancer, a choreographer, who um, has worked, started to work in the early 60s in New York and then kind of is still alive and still does amazing work. But she was part of the Judge Church Theatre. So she was part of this whole movement where for... 15 years, art and dance were really closely together, and they developed shows and, and kind of works together with Robert, Robert Morris, with Bruce Nauman, Robert Rauschenberg, Jasper Jones. It was really a, a very tight circle of artists. And so even Reiner was involved, and she, she started to do these amazingly rigid works like Trio A, mm. which have been a big influence mm. for minimalism. Mm. And um, so this show was, the, for the first time, a show where I felt it was showing her conceptual background by her scores, her writings, her theoretical text, but at the same time, they were performing um, three of her main works, also Trio A from the 60s, and they would do it four times a day. So you would arrive there and you could really experience the work. So it didn't feel like a dead exhibition where you had a lot of black and white photographs and you had to imagine through videos what the work was. It was, you could see the work and, and Yvonne was involved in, in teaching um, different performers from London. So it had different impacts. It had the impact that performers and practitioners from England and all over the world could learn her works again from her. So it had kind of the legacy was giving on. But it was also that as an audience, you could experience really the, the, the performances. And so I felt this is really a, a way, you know, to use the timeless again, where her work is kept alive in a way where I felt it's, it's totally um, in line with her thinking mm. and, and still is something new. But it kind of keeps that... Um, the, the, the kind of beauty of seeing a, a moving body alive. So I was very impressed by how they managed to, I mean, which is also a financial um, mm. managing, mm. right? Yeah. You have to have the funds to mm. do that. We all yeah, know that. Yeah. It's hugely expensive to run a performative program for two months continuously. Mm. Um, but so I was very impressed um, by that show and I thought that's really um, a perfect way to, to, do, to show a, a, a performer and choreographer who's so essential for visual art. Mm -hmm. mm. Justine? Uh, yes, um, that's so hard. There's so many works of art you'd like to talk about <laughs> that have touched me or affected me or stayed with me and all these kind of things. So, but um, when I first got that question, what came to me was actually just an exhibition last year um, by an artist, Sydney artist, Sarah Goffman. And the show was called City of Plenty. It was at Penrith Regional Gallery. And the work uh, involved the artist actually asking the community and friends and um, using her artist fee to buy foodstuffs and tins of, um, yeah, just food and toilet paper and all these things. And the idea of the whole show was to basically give this stuff away. So she'd make a work out of it. So she'd collect all these things, all these um, tins, these toilet paper, this shampoo, this conditioner, um, she worked in the, I like the way she actually worked in the space every day over three weeks. So it kind of just evolved. So it wasn't something she made in the studio, then just, you know, went to the gallery and stalled. I like the way that the work, um, I suppose for me, it's really that generosity of spirit that I really liked in the end, that she gave this thing away. And I like the idea that there was nothing really left of the work. And I asked her actually just recently, so do you feel like 
the work is now exists as a photograph. She goes, oh, no, it's not really anything now. It's just something I did. And so it was, it was a performance. That, exactly, mm. exactly. And I like the way there was an outcome afterward because then she gave it to Oz Harvest. I mean, so for me still, I, I kept thinking I'd like it to be um, a photographic object, but that's just me. Somehow I see that the work, that stuff um, kind of exists afterward as a document or something. And then can I just talk about one more? Years ago, <laughs> um, I never forget seeing Paul McCarthy in Smack. He had this um, in Ghent. He had this enormous exhibition, and it just really opened my eyes to the way you can just be kind of the way you can show video. And I think it really influenced my work. It was just very. It was half done. It was kind of half opened. Crates were half open, but I don't know if that was intentional. I quite liked that, as if he'd run out of time. I kind of liked the way that. Projectors were just on the floor, the very casual nature mm. of it. I love the way that it was... Um, you could just see, too, this man had worked very hard. I like that idea, too, of labour sometimes in work, even though it was kind of half-finished, and I like the rawness, and just that the, the performance. Some of them you could... I liked also, too, this transition you could see in his practice where he'd had not much money. And that's another thing I think I like about... Uh, Goffman's work too is that um, a lot of the time within her practice, because I actually dislike her practice in general, is that she, you don't need a lot of money. She actually uses pet bottle, plastic mm. bottles mm. and then transforms this kind of detritus and this rubbish that you usually wouldn't find, like you find on the street, and she paints it very meticulously into these beautiful kind of almost Asian vases in that blue and white. And so it makes you think about, you know, uh, am I looking at just this this bottle that you're throwing away? Or am I now looking at this, you know, this value judgment on art as well as lots of other things? But, um, and also to the time that it's taken in a way, even though it's still a bit kind of homemade. I kind of, it's, you know, and also too, I like the way her installations, I suppose it was a bit like McCarthy's, I like that sprawl, the largeness of it. I don't know if I'm talking about timelessness now, but this is just, um, just that use of space and objects um, that she would collect and the time that she'd take to install these very small things in a gallery and the fact that I'd, she'd make me go into a corner and look at something that could be quite insignificant but I was forced to kind of spend time with it. And I suppose, well, you know, it's the time looking at it, I suppose, that I kind of used to like about um, Sarah's work too is that she'd make these faux tatami mats and... Um, you kind of, they just look like car, but you take another look. If you spend a bit more time, you know, not race through, because I'm someone too that can be a bit hurried. Um, she would just draw. Like the whole thing was just made of these tiny, tiny pencil-like meditative lines that just became this drawing, which became a mat, which became a sculpture, which became this just this thing that she put other materials on. And I just thought that was really beautiful, that it was just something very simple, you know, but yeah. But you had to be there. That's right. So that time, the moment, it was in the moment. Stephanie, going back to performance for a second, how did you, because there's a lot of it obviously running right through, right through your Biennale, how did you think about that in relationship to, this, um, to the audience? Because, of course, only a small number of people will see that performance. And I presume in Penrith it would have been a, quite a small number of people coming in to see Sarah actually there in the gallery. Yes. So that moment, that moment of encounter between the art and the audience can be quite limited. And in the, mm. the, the demand for bigger audiences, you know, for, for funding bodies and all the rest of it nowadays, how did, how, did you, how did you negotiate that when you were putting the Biennale together? Well, what, what's always mm. been my approach was that if, 
and there are exceptions, of course, but if I integrated dance or choreography or performance, it's always been that I said these works have to be come back. They're like sculptures in a show, so they don't disappear. So, there is, they, so that means the performance can be experienced by as many people as comes from the show. So I've never been someone who was interested in saying, oh, this performance happens at nine o'clock every two weeks. Um, I've always said my rule is if I put it in my show, it has to be there continuously to not you know, implement a sudden stage scenario in an exhibition hall because I felt that's not what we're doing. I wa I'd have a show that means the show is open eight hours a day, there's no fixed times, people just pass through. So I always was um, having that argument that I said if I invite a choreographer, it has to be a new piece and it has to be done for the space. So it, it was done for the Hayward. Um, as always, you sometimes have to do compromises. And I do think um, what we realized for this Biennale now is amazing because we're having a lot of artists who do performative work, but we didn't manage to have the funds to do it over three months, you know, do 10 performances over three months continuously. So um, what we've done is we focused on a few pieces, like German Krupp, who's like continuously um, there, Mela Jasma, who's continuously there. But then, for example, in Widing Justine with the Sydney Chamber Opera, it was a, a decision from the beginning on that if it's such a big production, we can only do it three, four times. And um, that means, you know, if we only have a capacity of 90 people, it's, it's a piece which will be part of art history because it's, it's a recreation of a really important futuristic opera and it will stay in the exhibition and be possible for other people to perceive through Justine's installation. And so that's how we, how we kind of negotiated it by saying it is a mm. limited amount of people who can see it and then it becomes part of Justine's work. And so the filming, the sound, the new libretto, that's all present in, in the installation, which is now up for the next, next three months. So that's how mm. we've... So for you, Justine, you mentioned in relation to Sarah Goffman that you would like there to have been an outcome, mm. you know, a, a photograph or a yes. video or something. And with your work, what was the trans what's the translation like from the, from the performative aspect with the chamber orchestra into something that any of us who go out to Cockatoo in the next two or three weeks or till the end of the Biennale will see? How do you make that transition and where does timelessness sit? Is it in the memory of the people who saw the, who saw the performance or do you think it's really important that there is something physical that lives on? Yes, well... The first part of the question, I suppose, I still feel like I'm... So the installation is now open, yeah? So the, the performance has been made, and so this installation still exists, although I... So what I actually did for the live performance, I actually had pre-recorded videos, which is something that I felt like I had to do anyway for the work, because that's just something I do on my work, so that exists there. But then I have to now edit into, which I still am kind of doing, I'm meant to have finished tomorrow, but that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for taking time out. Yeah. <laughs> um, so now I actually, I don't see the live performance videos that are going back into the space as pure documentation. I will then now edit it in a way that I would edit my videos normally. So it'll actually now kind of sit in, because, you know, this, this opera was kind of, of course, went, had a start and a finish. I'm going to edit it, I think, so that it, well, I am editing it at the moment, so it actually is kind of around the bout and so that it, when people confront the space, it'll actually kind of be 
I suppose the way I usually like people to enter my space is just more of a cacophonous, kind of um, confusing space where people are bombarded with different images. And so it'll be a different experience to the live performance. So in that way, people who got to see the live performance will get to understand it in one way. If they go back and visit it, they can probably see how it's changed. And then people who didn't see it, they'll just experience it as an uh, art installation with the kind of... I mean, I am going to leave some... Um, post-performance elements probably in the space like the costumes. Usually I like to actually kind of, with the costumes, um, either sew them or stick them back together and make repurpose them so they become another object. So then people can witness them just, just not as a... Um, just the kind of aftermath of... Not dead. Fo- yes. <laughs> so it becomes something... Regener- and it kind of, more I than like, a remnant. That's right, yeah. exactly, more yeah. than a remnant. And I like that idea that it kind of art can keep changing it in the space yeah. or afterwards yeah. be repurposed. And, yeah. um, Jacqueline, yeah. just to go back to your mm. example for a second, thinking about um, the way in which Tracy Moffat and Gary Hilmer worked in terms of pulling that, that video together, they took pre-existing music, as we've said, music and film, and, and brought it together in that, in that way. Is that something that you feel is particularly evocative? And, and that you think that's why they, you had such a, a strong emotional response? And for that reason, you know, those films would have reminded you perhaps of the films when you saw them originally, so you were aware of the longer narrative running through it? Oh, absolutely. I think it's the, the way that it triggers the emotional responses that you've had um, when you first saw those films. So many of those would have been recognisable to a fairly wide audience. Um, and so you, what you become acutely aware of um, is, uh, on reflection actually, is that you watched these films, you took enormous pleasure in watching these films, as did you know, Tracy and, and Gary as well, loved these films, and yet every time that you saw these films, there was a particular kind of um, relationship dynamic, I guess, that was being communicated and you were absorbing off, off and off often without really being conscious of that. So in other words, you are normalising the dysfunctional behaviour that the, the editing of these excerpts in such a, an intense period um, in this film actually made you aware of. You were actually normalising that kind of dynamic, power dynamic between, uh, between the genders. So there's that, that acute sense that you, what you love is also what is in a sense poisoning you, <laughs> if you like. So, and the, the ambivalence of that is, an, is a very strong kind of emotion, I think, to, 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 to recognise that in a sense, you know, what, what, when you feel that you're actually trying to observe a particular kind of ethical path in your life, and in fact, you're, uh, you're also complicit in many of the, uh, you know, the, the transgressions of that ethical path. So I think it's that, that ambivalence in particular that kind of brings that, uh, the, the emotion to such a, such a head when you're actually looking at that. I did just want to mention one other um, work <coughs> which I was thinking about also perhaps talking about, and it relates to some of the things that we've been hearing around performance and, and memory and timelessness. Because as we know, um, you know our memories um, often are, are particularly, you know, um, uh, strong when we, uh, through through hearing, through taste and through touch, so not just visual, when your visual senses are, are actually stimulated, but when you have a much more complex kind of sensual interaction with something. So I wanted to raise the example of another um, uh, artist collaboration that I just find is, um, you know, just so on the money, so so incredibly sophisticated, so powerful, and that's Janet Cardiff and George Beerus Biller. 
Uh, and this kind of way of working with, uh, in a sense, a kind of performance that is performed by the viewer themselves, together with video, together with kind of with spatial elements. So, they, and the way that they've developed working has been uh, called physical video. And so what happens is that, and I'll just give one example of a work that I saw relatively recently, which was at the Documenta uh, in 2012 in Castle, and the installation was in the, in the disused um, train station. Uh, the the Alter Bahnhof. Yeah. Um, so, in other words, it was uh, the original railway station of the town. Um, uh, the the real business of the station had moved on to a new structure, so this is abandoned. But it still had sort of um, some remnants of uh, of businesses and so on. And what they did is that they 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 shot a video of this of this space, um, but that the work was actually held in a handheld device, which then the viewers actually, you know, together with, a, with, a, with earphones actually got at the, at the entrance of, of the exhibition. So what you were looking at, by, but you were holding it in this handheld device, <laughs> was the video that they made of the space and you had directions that were actually whispered into your ear by the artist Janet Cardiff herself, directing your movements so that you were holding your handheld device and you were matching it with the actual space in you with you, and if you can imagine that. So while you're looking at a video and it's a kind of alternate reality that's being represented in the video, nonetheless you're actually standing in the very space in which that video was shot and you're being uh, instructed so that every time you hold up your handheld device it's matching the architecture behind and you're walking through the space so you're being stimulated through your, you know, through sound, you're being stimulated through touch because you're touching this. And the, the, the narrative and the video uh, that they shot that is un unfurling is, is really, in a sense, bringing alive the, the vast diversity of memories that are evoked through this space, some of which have a very long history because this, this railway station had a particular you know, role to play in the deportation of Jews from that particular town. But it takes you through the spaces so that you are getting this incredibly complex and incredibly beautiful multiple stimulation and your memories are kind of like, they're just sparking. And my experience of that work, again, I would say is timeless in the sense that not only has it stayed with me, um, but it... it uh, in a way that, you know, really powerful, for example, minimalist sculpture as well, it sort of changes your relationship to space. Mm -hmm. So you carry that with you when you're actually, well after you've actually, um, you know, experienced the artwork itself, the, the seeds of, of insight and critique are embedded within you through that multiple sort of sensory stimulation. And you don't even need to go to Germany to experience it because one of the legacy pieces <laughs> from the last Biennale of Sydney was a work by Janet and George that is a, an articulation of Sydney, of yeah. the area around the rocks, which I think you can still yes, pick up at yeah. Customs House and, yeah. and do again. So they do have a wonderful way of, of re-articulating how you actually navigate a city. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting thinking about the examples you've talked about from the black square, which I guess the Malevich is a kind of, you would imagine is a typical timeless work because it exists in real space, mm. in time. You, it's in a museum. When you go to St. Petersburg, you can visit it and pay homage to it in the same way as people do with the Mona Lisa in Paris. Um, through to the sort of performative aspect that, that Stephanie referenced and of course with Justine's work, which covers both performance and also video and, and installation and, and presumably objects that can be acquired afterwards yes, and video and, and sound work. So it seems to me that we are, we are arguing that there is this incredible um, variety and plethora of possibilities for timeless works of art, timeless works that exist in reality, but also timeless mm. works that exist in our mm. imagination. Mm. 
I don't know. <laughs> You're just an artist. I know. <laughs> but do, is it important to you that people acquire your work, Justine? I mean, what, what is this? We're, we're talking a lot about the, the, the world outside the market, the world, the world where artists and audiences encounter each other in a way, in public space rather than in, in a market sense. I've just come back from the Hong Kong Art Fair, so perhaps it's particularly <laughs> strong in my mind how, how difficult and perhaps antith antithetical to the kinds of experiences we're talking about, the whole thing about the market-driven I don't know if it's world. important, but I'd love people to buy my work. <laughs> um, I don't know how... I mean, I, I know that my practice, because... It is, I mean, there is still objects, so it can be purchased, um, but it doesn't tend to be, people who uh, tend to buy my work, it's not, it's not going to be a private collector, it's probably going to be more of an institution, so that it, um, so that it's different in that way. And I have um, tried to make things, I kind of feel like there's like the runway art, and then there's the, or there's like pret-a-porter art that you can make, <laughs> and then there's like ready-to-wear. And I'd love to make more ready-to-wear so people can purchase it. But um, I don't know if I'm you very good at... Yeah, I don't know. I'm not very good at that. So, um, I, yeah. Anyway, yeah, but I think that... I mean, I think videos are very, you know, easy to buy, mm. I suppose. But it's just... It's more of an institutional thing. Um, I don't make videos for the performance for that reason. It's just that I do like... I, I, I've come from a, a history of a lens-based practice. I love moving image now. I kind of find, like, I love to kind of create these... Uh, I feel like make, in a video, I just like to kind of... It's like a painting for me, and mm -hmm. I like to make this really arresting image, and then I love to bring it back out into the space. So it's, I feel like I want to do lots of different things with art as much as I can, all on the one thing. And um, But with relation to, um, you know the work being sold or bought, I mean, I don't know, it's, um, it's just a market out there, isn't it? And it's what, I mean, I just make my art now and if people buy it, that's great. Mm. Uh, the only thing, so I don't rely on it, of course. So, of course, I have other jobs and um, I, I apply for funding and um, I do the best I can. But if there's no money, I will still continue to make art, mm. um, even if it's with, you know, the, like Sarah, with the plastic bottles that you find. I mean, I will go into the, go back to the good guys and find that cardboard inside the, the dump bin just to make stuff. Because mm. unfortunately, it's kind of like a, um, uh, I suppose it's a habit and mm. it's kind of something that I can't stop doing. So it's just something that will exist in some form or another. And what about love, Tracy Moffat's love? Tracy, of course, is famous for having very long... Uh, runs of her videos. I think they're, they're not like one out of three. They're probably maybe 40 or 50 in the mm. edition. Mm. So they are actually very um, mm. accessible in, in mm. many ways compared mm. to a lot of sort of, you know, perhaps um, bigger names in the art world. Mm. Have, have you ever been tempted to get one for yourself? Probably couldn't afford it by then, I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> but so it doesn't matter to you? It's timeless in the sense that you, you retain your memories of it rather than wanting to, to, oh, to watch well, it again? I, you know, I come at the art, at the art world as a, you know, as a writer, uh, not as a collector. And, uh, and for me, art is it's, it's an opportunity for me to have an experience and to stimulate my thinking and expand my view of the world. And then as a writer, to try to, to communicate that experience and share it with other people. So I guess that's the way that I see my role and I've 
the, the few artworks that I have actually have all been donated to me by artists whom I've written about. So, oh, <laughs> so I nice. do have a lovely Ben Quilty, yes. <laughs> I do have a beautiful Tracy Moffat from her series Up in the Sky, yeah. <laughs> and a couple of other works from, uh, from artist friends. So, yeah, the experience, I guess, is, is and the timelessness in the way that I've described, there's many ways to come at it, but it's the way that I suppose that it stayed with me. That's one of the measures of timelessness in the sense mm. that these encounters with the, both the works that I talked about have changed my view not only of other of art more generally, but uh, of my sense of um, myself in the world, like spatially and culturally speaking. Because you know, watching Love, for instance, and the way that it transfixed me. I was talking before about the pleasure that I took in those films when I first saw them. Many of them, you know, I saw them when I was very young, was a child. You know, like the midday movies and so I used to watch on TV, kind of back to back, or go to the double feature and so on. Um, and my, you know, the, like I said, the pleasure of that. And yet, um, you know, recognising that, that they were very complex vehicles, you know, they're not just, you know, pleasure machines, uh, movies, but actually they, they not only reflect, but really inform our cultural values. So uh, I think that that sense of, uh, of an artwork actually, you know, I guess allowing you to tweak to the way that culture has worked on you to create the person that you are today. I mean, that's one of the key things that I guess... Uh, characterises a, a really intense experience for me with artwork when I get that, that, uh, that ability for self-reflection and then when I write about that to be able to, I suppose, share that, that process of, of the artwork and, and myself kind of in a form of exchange, if you like, in a form of conversation and analysing that and, 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 and trying to capture you know, the emotional intensity of that in my writing, so opening up the, the artwork for interpretation and engagement by other people. Yeah. And Stephanie, we're talking very much here as um, uh, you know professionals, as it were, people who are working within the art world. But in certainly in your role and in, in my role as, as a museum director, there is a lot of people out there who are not absolutely part of our world, but will come to the Biennale out of curiosity, or they'll see an image in the paper and think that looks interesting and come along. Um, how how do you feel a Biennale can actually um, deliver to people like that who are maybe looking for the next? interesting thing and can we sustain their interest can we in in this culture where we're overloaded with images everywhere can, is it possible for a gallery like the Hayward to continue to uh, engage with a wider audience or is it becoming increasingly difficult no I, I don't I don't think it becomes increasingly difficult I still also have the position that you know if we talk about now a lot of people are interested in contemporary art it's still not enough mm -hmm. I feel it's, it's still a minor... I mean, if you think about how many people really see art or engage with art, it's, it's by far not enough. Mm. And I, I think that museums, exhibitions and collections are becoming more, again, more and more important. I mean, if we're talking about collecting, I mean, the life a lot of people live nowadays is like we travel, you know, you, you work in many different places, you're not maybe even, mm. you know, live your whole mm. life in one place like still my parents or my grandparents did. So mm. for me... It's never been an interest to collect because I feel this is the benefit of our... We have free collections. I mean, I go... One of my favourite paintings I go to is in Uccello in the, in the National Gallery, and it makes me cry to just think about it. And it's, that's my collection. I just go there, you know? It's like free. You don't have to... You can walk in. You can go for 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. you can, and I think that's the purpose also of exhibitions, that you just make them... Make people realise that they can come, you know, and, and just see and mm -hmm. be inspired... And you're not, you don't have the bullet. I mean, for me, I've always thought to own things is 
of course, a huge responsibility. It is also just the ballot. No, I mean, I've always decided I don't want a house, I don't want a car. Like, all the time you spend to do that, and if you have a collection at home, I mean, the care you, you want to give the collection is, wouldn't be something I feel... I wouldn't do it because I can just walk, look, I can come to you and it's kind of so many things. <laughs> and so why free entry is so important. Oh, yeah, absolutely. it is. And it, I, th I think it really is. And yeah. so one of the things we still have at the Hayward that we have to charge people because yeah. well, that's how we, how we do exhibitions. And mm. I think that is a huge benefit of collections where you just can wander yeah. in. And that is really the collection and Certainly of in the UK, the collections of the National Galleries belong to yeah. the people of the UK. They're not bought with private money. Mm. They're all bought yeah. in originally with government money. Some with private, but there's been a lot of... And they're very much for, for the people, which is why they, they, were, uh, they were all made free back in, whenever it was, 1998 or something. And, yeah. and, and of course, still, you know, these institutions have the necessity to raise their audience mm. numbers, but paid exhibition, like mm. paid places where you have to play tickets, it's basically essential, otherwise you can't mm. even do Indeed. shows. So the question of how much spectacle do you need to get people into an exhibition is much, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a much more crucial survival question than I think the, 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 the beauty of the Biennale is that it is free, you know, mm. and people are still, I mean, it's still, mm. I'm still... I'm surprised how many people don't know about mm. it. That mm. it is, you can just wander in. Mm. And I think that's, that's the, <laughs> that was one of the reasons why I felt really tempted to do a Biennale. Because mm. before I was always like, that's a circus of, you know, part of our mm. art circus is mm. a Biennale. And here it really feels the it's so embedded in the city mm. and Australia in itself mm. and has a huge international outreach that as an artistic director, you have the benefit of already having 600,000 who just come, you know. Of mm. course, then you can probably work against you if you if you do something where the press then picks up and says oh it's too difficult no one gets it it's really but usually i think the audience you know that we audience find when we get negative generous. reviews our audiences go up <laughs> yeah so and certain, I also feel, certain reviews and i also feel that you have a very i mean just wandering around in the venues there are a lot of people who come anyway yes and make their own exactly opinions, you know? exactly it's what you're saying I, it's not like the theater world in new york where a bad review can shut it down in mm. fact i think what what reviews do are they draw attention to something and they stir up the debate mm. and quite often it can be it can be very productive you can actually get people saying oh i'll go and check it out that sounds like there's something going on there so mm -hmm. but that's what i love about art is that it usually opens things up exactly it doesn't close things down mm. and we kind of love questioning and we are almost all the time always unsure of ourselves yeah you know, we're not always very certain mm. and we're not very didactic a lot of the time. Most of us, the reason, it's that unknowing. Mm. It's the black square. Yeah. That's the reason why we continue. It's that yeah. thing like there's something in there, there's juice in there that you know, there's something about the world that you want to... Um, make or you want to express something about the world that you can't actually maybe put into words, that you can't articulate, that art can express, that yeah. art can... Um, mm. So I'm going to get emo now. <laughs> well, that's a very good... The point of questioning yeah, is a very good moment to suggest that we might ask for some questions for yeah. the audience. Now, yeah. because we are being recorded, would you please put your hand up if you have a burning question? And we'll get... Um, there we are, one at the back. We'll get a, a, a microphone to you. Could you tell me what uh, you mean in the question by timeless? Uh, because I'm thinking if I compare uh, the question to um, uh, music... Uh, can contemporary music sound timeless? Well, you sort of think, well, does it sound like common practice harmony? Um, music's so, um, such a construction of human progress 
that it's hard to imagine what timeless could mean there. And I think there's maybe something there with art mm. uh, as well. So what do we mean by timeless? Mm. What do we mean by timeless? I think there's several different definitions going the rounds here. Um, Jacqueline, do you want to...? Yeah, you know, it's, it's a good question in the sense that <clears throat> uh, there's many different approaches. I, I said in, mm. in terms of the um, examples that I used that one measure for me was how, as someone who knows about art and who experiences it, when a work really cuts and it stays with you. That, for me, is a form of timelessness. Mm. So it rises above the moment. Yeah, in other words, you know... Uh, for somebody in my field, I actually yeah I see quite a lot of art, <laughs> and it's it's every now and again you will you will have an experience with a particular work that will really stay with you, mm. and it you know we were talking before or at least Justine was explaining that sense of you know art and the the desire of the artist to actually explore things that they don't know and that kind of enigma kind of remaining and I think that kind of that, that enigma together with you know some of the examples that I used in terms of that, their emotional power uh, is one measure of the timelessness in other words that work is something that I could keep returning to it it's, it stays in time if you like but um, I think the point you were making was about it being specific in terms of its classic. cultural references yeah. is that what you were getting at so that you know it's of the nineteen 19- yeah. Um, clearly, another definition could be it's enduring. It's that's uh, right. Uh, yes, it's yes. Indeed, perhaps that's yeah. the way we're discussing the Black yeah. Square. It is a work of art that was made in the last century, but it's still very relevant today because it doesn't necessarily locate itself in that century. It has a, a different reading for where it is today, and I think that's for me that's what's exciting about art is that it can shift the readings can shift according to where you stand in history and also coming like just going back to a work sometimes later in life you can come back to it and see it in a different way that it, approaching it um, can reveal something else to you which i think mm. is really nice mm. Mm. so that maybe is could be a timeless kind of aspect to a work i suppose mm. yeah I th- but i also think that what's important for me i mean i was thinking about timeless in the sense of that it still has a relevance now it's like a mm. you know you re you re you reread it differently so each work looks you know if you look at it it looks different depending on in what time your position so if i look at a work in the 50s which is from the early 20th century then now i obviously look at it differently because I'm sitting in a different framework. But I also think, for me, a timely work is not... You know, it's not that I think timeless is better than timely. I mean, a Biennale, I think, is a lot about timely. You want to talk about the now. I think that what I feel at the moment, if you would ask me why are you interested in contemporary art, I would say because I think that I learn through artists about the the, the, the world I'm living in. So then I think... It is important it's timely because I think an artist can talk about what just happened yesterday. I don't think a work is not good if it does that um, or less interesting. I think it's just a way of saying, you know, we're able to look at what... I'm sure we can look at very timely works and reread them or translate mm. them like mm. the Embassy of Translation at the MCA mm. is talking about mm. that and just finding new words for it and a new interpretation for it. And I think with music, I would see that similarly in a way that you can, you know look at a piece of music and just experience it very differently because you might suddenly think of, you know, sounds you which come out of your computer which haven't been relevant then. I think Kurt Schwitters for mm. me, Ursonat is very mm. kind of relevant even if Same. it's been done. Yeah, it's mm. kind the of... Ursonata, yeah. <laughs> still to this day, yeah, yeah. it's very relevant. And Mertzbauer for me, very, 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 very yeah. relevant. 
Very. And so I think there is, and probably at the time, one might have said, oh, that's very timely, and then you mm. suddenly find a new, new words for it or a kind of new interpretation. So, mm. yeah, I kind of think timely works are quite... Mm. What do you think about the injunction of the, you know, to be modern, when modernism was really about to be of one's time? In other words, mm. it, it provided kind of licence for artists to actually, mm. this is the mid-19th century, to start actually talking about and representing and responding to what was actually happening in their world rather than looking back to antiquity or to mythologies and so on. So, in a sense, contemporary art is always of its time, but it's also always, you know, historical as well, mm -hmm. <laughs> necessarily so. And timelessness, I think, in the way that it was framed for this question, it had that kind of implication that you're looking for something that, um, that endures over time and has kind of historical relevance over a certain time. And, and uh, going back to it, the ideas of of cultural value being embedded in something that doesn't change, if you like, that sort of, you know, the kind of fetish that we have around antiquity. Whereas, in fact, you know, since at least modernism, art has always been of its time. And yet, the, and nonetheless, we can look back on, and, and look 19th century works or early 20th century actually works and call them timeless, when in fact they were actually responding very, as you were saying, to the, the political, social, cultural realities of their time. Mm -hmm. Any other hands up? Here's one here. Yes, if I could ask you to explain why you chose the film by Samuel Beckett. I was there yesterday. Um, and um, the crowd who were there yesterday, lots of parents with young children. Um, there's very little explanation I noticed in what you do. Um, so that it's all how you react to things. Um, and why did you choose Samuel Beckett? Um, the film is... So in the whole, so the film for me has always been an important inspiration in the sense of not seeing or the imagination of not being able to see. So it's again about the darkness. Um, Buster Keaton, who basically walks around the world with the, the eyes closed and kind of hides, but at the same time it's, it's a revelation for him. So the work has been important for me and nearly, I think, a prologue probably would be right, or an epilogue, or it's not a footnote to the Biennale, but it's definitely something which is out of the choreography of the Biennale. So the placement is in a very separate building. I, I thought a lot of people probably will miss it. Um, but it's that kind of... Nearly when you have a... Um, Again, if you do a, a piece of music, I always feel if it's too melodic, it doesn't quite work. So for me, you need this, <laughs> this little irritation where you suddenly feel like, ooh, you know, you wake up and you think about things slightly different. And it's a very critical film. It's the war. It's, I think there are a lot of things in which are very painful. And that's, I think our times are, but I don't think I have to do a show where I'm constantly show war scenes. But I, I think that's the times we're living in. And um, so the film for me brings that in without, you know, having that constant bang on people's heads saying you better think about what you're doing because I can tell you you should do it better. Um, so that's, the, that's the, the reason I put it in, but I didn't want it to put it in a, you know, at the beginning I had it as the first piece of the Biennale and everybody would have had war. And then I felt, well, but that's me a bit like, as, as what Justine says, maybe a bit like a didactic thing of, thinking I have to tell people. So I've done it in that little um, bunker room. And so now I'm curious, were there lots of people um, looking at it? A few, yes. A few, yeah. My question is, was the fact that it was Samuel Beckett important? 
If Sa I'm very yeah, Samuel Beckett is so. I remember I was I was. Almost totally. He was. You mean that it was by him? Yes. The piece. Samuel Beckett for me is a very so. Um, very early on when I did speech training. Um, the person who did it with me, because she thought I'm a terrible speaker, said, who would you be, real, who, if you would talk, who's the person who'd like to talk, you like to talk to and you really want this person to listen to you? Or, <laughs> and I thought, God, if Samuel Beckett would be like, I would love to. So he's like, he's for me always been um, a, a revelation. Like the way how he did theater, he reinvented theater, how he's using mm. language how he's cutting things up and still making sense of it. He's, for me, a tremendously important person, how he brings theatre, film together. And, again, you know, he could have been someone... I feel if you show pieces by him, even, you know, the, um, the German is Quadrat, the things he did with the Bayerische Rundfunk, they're so, you know... If I would screen them, I feel like no one would know that they've been done in the 70s or, you know... That he's very relevant for me as... as um, I've never read a autobiography is the only one I read in my life. So he's very, <laughs> he's a very influential person for me. Personal. It's always personal, no? I mean, it's personal, but you do it personal because you feel it has a relevance for, um, you know, you want to say something with the show. I think otherwise you're not, I don't think I would do a show if I would try to be neutral. I mean, mm. or I would cheat myself. Because how could I be? It's still always me. Can I ask, is Quad in the Biennale? Oh, <laughs> now that's the next one. For me, that's the black square. Yeah, exactly. That's the, yeah. That is for me such a yeah. This, mm. Samuel Beckett's quad. That that was the one I was talking about, which is the yeah. His very you would show it, and no one would know. Oh. That's an old. I actually referred to it in a very small way into my performance, but no one would ever know. <laughs> but, um, yeah. Anyway, sorry, we're getting tangential now. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm glad um, uh, that finally now in the Q&A we are actually talking about what I think is really the question of the interview. I think for a long time in this interview we were talking about um, timeless being something that stays on in the memory, something that's actually a physical work of art that can stay on. Surely there's a lot of works of art that exist as physical works of art that will not uh, be timeless. Mm -hmm. um, surely timeless works of art are works of art that can, as you now said, um, be, that are able to change over time, and not just from 2012 till 2016, but over 100, 200 years, that are able to be seen in a completely different way, and as you said, now um, be relevant, and also this gentleman said, how could contemporary music be rele relevant, uh, be timeless, because it's um, uh, so eternal, it's not some... Um, uh, I, surely that um, is not a definition of um, timelessness. Surely a definition of timelessness in music as well is something that change, can change over time and remain relevant over long periods of time. Yeah. Maybe we're talking about that dreaded word quality. Quality, yeah, comes in. Something that is actually a really good work of art will transcend its time and be capable of taking on different meanings over centuries in the same way as we've talked about with, with Black Square. Picasso's Guernica, for example, I'm sure we can all think of historical examples. It's harder when you get closer to the present day to, to pin 
the ones now that would be the ones that in <laughs> 10, 15, 20, 50 years are mm. going to come back. We'd be sitting on this platform going, yes, that's, mm. that's the equivalent of the black mm. square. Maybe that's the question. What is the contemporary today's equivalent of the black square? Mm. Well, you can't tell that without the benefit of Distance. hindsight. <laughs> Mm. Well, I already know within my own practice, I look back and there's things that you just go, oh, <laughs> and other things I look, and then, or other people come to me, just, and they're not just friends, they are people who probably are just involved in the arts, who tend to say, this work, um, for me, out of your, just, this is just within my own practice, not that it's going to be timeless or anything, but sometimes there are works that perhaps stand out. And I don't know if this is timely or timeless, but it's because, and they still stay in their memory, and it's because at that time the work, um, it's actually the work that I might be donating to the MCA, because at the time, <laughs> at the time maybe um, was necessary or was slightly different or ruptured, which at the time or was not seen. I mean, I feel like with art, Everything is being done, but you can always change it and make it new at any moment. So uh, with this particular work that people talk about of mine that they think is, stands out in my practice or has made a slight difference or something, or that, I don't know if that has affected or something. I mean, I don't want to say that, but, you know, um, it's just been um, something that people remember and they can come back to and they still think that it maybe it sparked a change or a direct... Mm. But Certainly it's something we discuss a lot in the museum when we're deciding what to buy course, because we are yeah. buying in the hopes that the works we are investing in will actually be timeless and will be relevant and mm. meaningful when we put them out in 10 or 20, 30, 40, 50 years. But it's, it's, um, it's a very interesting process to have that conversation exactly as Justine has said about which works are that we think have nailed a particular moment or have a particular importance that can cause us to look at something differently and mm. um, often the, 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 uh, the process of articulation among a curatorial team as happens in a museum, it's not one person, we're not just one collector, mm. we're actually a, a group of people who sit and discuss and debate which works we think are important mm. enough for us to, to, to take into the collection. Because often, sorry, yeah, often the works, and I was reflecting on this, the ones that I've um, selected, but also others that I was thinking about in terms of this question, is that there's a very curious kind of, um, uh, I guess, uh, ambivalence in that often they're works that capture the zeitgeist, <laughs> mm. uh, which mm. is of its time. Again, to come back to that notion that it's of its time, it's actually, it's, it's able to kind of distill in a very powerful way what were the concerns of that particular moment. And you might have a very strong reaction to that, being of it at the same time as this work was produced, but it may that may shift as you know as, mm. as time passes, and it might be seen that mm. in fact what appeared to capture the zeitgeist did not. No. So, and so maybe in a way timely and timeless are not necessarily opposite. No, absolutely no. not. The, the, that's absolutely. the point that I was saying. In fact, they're in relationship with one another. Mm. Yeah. But there again, I think we've identified two kinds of. Uh, timeless. There's, there's timeless enduring for a particular um, viewer and there's also uh, what endures in the common estimation. Uh, Oscar Wilde said nothing goes out of fashion so quickly as the fashionable. Uh, so um, some, I think the answer uh, is some contemporary art will endure both in individual view and in the collective uh, view. We just don't know what they are yet. 
Yeah, and the point should also be made that, that a lot of contemporary art, in, in for example, the um, you know Sarah Goffman's work, it actually sets out not to endure. That's right. <laughs> that's it's very that's you know so that's cute. it's very rationale you know, uh, and which it allows which allows it to engage with a whole range of different kind of debates and, and <laughs> ideas around what you know whether we want things to endure and what. What, the, what does that mean? Yeah. Actually, in this work that I'm talking about that my friends or people talk about that was interesting in my practice, it actually, the hard drive broke, so I don't really have the originals, probably should be And um, so it's actually not very good quality, you know, and so it probably, who knows if it will endure, actually, probably. I'm talking myself down now. So, I'm so shonky town. Because like, the thing is, at the time, you just make the, no, exactly, you know, at the yeah. time, you don't make the well, work yeah. for it to, well, I don't anyway, I don't but, make the work for it But we then, last. as a museum, yeah. go through this yeah. whole process with the conservator yeah. and the registrar, and, and it is one of the big challenges is for a museum, because we actually pride ourselves on buying difficult work. We actually want to buy the work that no other museums will take on. Mm. Um, actually, because if, we're, if we're, we're a contemporary museum, if we say, oh no, it's got to be you know, absolutely fixed, whether it's physically or whatever, then, then we're actually going to miss out a whole lot of um, interesting practice. So, so we have this constant tension between buying difficult work and wanting it to endure. Actually, another thing that has inspired my practice has been to look back in history, particularly works like Mertz Bau and Ursanata, Ursanat, yeah, that all that remains is some scant document. Mm -hmm. It actually, because it got burnt, mm -hmm. you know, uh, in the war, something mm -hmm. happened to it, it got lost, um, the artist threw it out, and that all that remains is some, I actually kind of like that sometimes, is this idea around mm. just what was written about the work or mm. ideas about it and performance. That's where mm. I think I'm interested in the document and the performance is what, mm. what's this thing that happened and did it really happen and how did it happen and what do we have left to talk about? Anyway, I don't know if I'm going off. We, we have something called the Contemporary Art Archive which tries to capture some of that information. Yeah, right. Have we time for another? Anybody got another burning question? One more? No? Are we out of time? Five minutes? Mm. One more question? Somebody over here? We just... This is not a question, it's a comment. Something that I thought was very amusing of, of something that would be regarded as timeless being catapulted into the contemporary art um, perception, if you like. But the last time I saw the Mona Lisa in Paris, it was in a gallery on one wall, absolutely inundated with uh, tourists, mostly Asian, people taking photos of this tiny little thing. On the opposite wall of this otherwise empty room was a, the biggest picture I'm sure that they must have in their collection. And there was nobody looking mm. at that at all. And that to me was... Because the Mona Lisa had been validated and everybody it, was... It was a very entertaining, mm. the curation mm. of mm. putting the crowd drawer in and, and it just, it suddenly made it a very modern um, uh, live... Um, I don't know what the technical term is, but a live action performance mm. with Mona Lisa <laughs> at the centre mm. and all of those tourists as part of the, of the, of the tools of the artist, mm. the artist in this case being the curator. Mm. And I think the, the exciting thing about contemporary art is it, it is up to you to make your mind up. And even we professionals, we, all, we admit we don't always get it right, but it's just as important. It's not that, I mean, obviously, who decides what goes into a museum or what's exhibited in a Biennale or what's written about is a matter for the profession, and, and I'm a great believer in the profession of curation. I don't believe just because 
anyone can curate on the internet, that makes them a curator. I think there is, there is still a very strong professional um, need for, for this sifting through of, of what we think is good and important. But that doesn't mean to say that the opinions of the audience and what you bring to it are not as important. And what's exciting now, I think, particularly with social media, and that, that people want to react. They want to tell us, certainly in the museum, what they think. They want to you know, write down, we, we have a thing called Articulate, an iPad where people can actually record their, their, their views, their drawings, their responses, and it's hugely popular. So this wonderful sense that contemporary art isn't something fixed, it is something that the meaning can shift depending on who you are, what you're looking at, what moment in time you're at, is, I think makes it a very exciting discipline to be working in. And um, everybody's nodding, so I assume you all agree <laughs> with me. Are we out of time? One more. Could we just grab the microphone Sorry. quickly? Um, thank you. Um, I think it's really important also, I, with my daughter represent a gallery, uh, I think it's really important also to bring people to acknowledge and appreciate contemporary art. And there are a lot of people out there who feel that they're not interested in art. So if it's too cutting edge to begin with, you're like, oh, I don't get that, you know, don't know that, or whatever. So I, I think it's very important for, for both. It's very important to lead people in, that's my, my passion and joy, mm. to then see them reading more and more about art, then, seeing, then they go to the galleries more. So even, I'm not saying it can only be that way, but it's a lead-in, and I think sometimes institutions don't see, don't give enough encouragement for those that are not that educated at, and they feel, oh, that I, I don't know anything about it. You don't have to know anything about it. Just follow your passion. You, you may not need to know anything about it, but one thing I always argue, and I think we feel very strongly about it at the museum, is that we curators and artists and writers are incredibly privileged. So we go to the studio. There's a, wonderful, there's a wonderful lecture by Sir Nicholas Sorota where he talks about going to an artist's studio for the first time and having that, what he describes as a frisson of fear. This is the director of the Tate, with all his experience, talking about going into a studio and not having the first idea what he's looking at. And that's fine. We should all embrace that frisson of fear. But what then happens is that Sir Nicholas gets a chance to talk to the artist. And even though, as Justine has said, the artist's ideas may not be absolutely this is what it means, what the artist then reveals will allow the curator to make their mind up about showing the work. So in a museum context or a gallery context, I think, and we all do it, it's incredibly important that we give those clues, those bits of information, not to tell people what to think, not to give meanings or explanations, but actually that kind of information that curators have, have access to when they go to studios. And sometimes I, I, curators used to say to me, oh, well, you know, the art speaks for itself. And I would say, well, actually, it's not speaking to me right now, and I'm a museum <laughs> director, so could somebody please tell me why you've put it on display? And it is a simple, in a way, it's a kind of a courtesy, saying this is why we're showing it, and this is why we have introductory panels, it's mm. why we have expanded labels, it's why we have... So you have art writers. We have art writers, <laughs> exactly. We have apps that you download to find more information. We even, and this is why we love working with living artists, we have interviews with the artist. Mm. So you can actually, but you do have to do a bit of work. It's not all... Mm 
we can't spoon feed the audience either. I mean, if you if you want to find out more, then you should be able to find it. You should be able to, to download the app or come to a lecture or come and meet the artist. There are all these opportunities for engagement. But that first encounter is often going to be something where mm. you feel a little bit off kilter mm. because it's not within your knowledge base. I mean, and that's what the exciting thing about contemporary art is. It's not about making it easy. It's just mm. about providing a context where people will want to find out more about it. Mm. I also think that a lot of museums and galleries today actually have very extensive education programs, mm. something that, are, uh, you know, yeah. that include a lot of schools. So I feel like younger people are getting involved. Mm. Also, I like to actually um, Im have employ people that are non-art people in my performances, particularly like I use labourers and bricklayers and people who... Because uh, I, I believe that performance and... Um, you, can perf you don't need to be an actor or a singer mm. to perform. And so I love to actually bring just everyday people into my work. And they're always like, at first they're like, so Justine, this is kind of weird, but you explain it to them, they get involved, and next thing mm. you know, they're turning up to exhibitions. It's just a matter of being open to it. Exactly. Mm. It's, not the arts that's, it's not the art that's the problem, it's the context. We make it difficult. We make people feel alienated by mm. not making them, giving them, and, we, and then we write in a language that is even worse. Sometimes yeah. our labels make things even worse. <laughs> we have a word monitor in the museum. It's somebody who doesn't... He's, they're not an art person, but they're clearly an intelligent person. And they, they read all the, all the information to make sure that we don't use language that makes people feel even more yeah. alienated. Because what's the point of that? And I think what you're pointing out is very important, that it's our responsibility yeah. to, you know, make a conversation possible. And I mm. think the MCA is one of the places where they are the best invigilators because they mm. really mm. have a passion about... I've never ever... I think it's a struggle of every museum to get this right. And I think it's one of the rare ones where I feel you come in, they're very friendly, they know everything, they don't push it onto you. And I think that's the right way. I think what is really wrong, and I do think there is a... You know, the demand on opening up, I think, is very often done by thinking we have to entertain. And I think that's the end of art. Because if you start to think you have to entertain your audience, then I think this is the opposite of why mm. I feel mm. contemporary art is important. Because it is about thinking critically and engaging. And I think, for me, the biggest moment of happiness if I, is if I get inspired. And that means I have to work. My mind has to be engaged. And I think a lot of institutions nowadays do this kind of performative events, which are like, in a way, I feel, well, then... You know, people anyway would even... You, you can get that everywhere. Just switch mm. on the television or mm. go... But I think it's, it's not what I... And in England, I think it's extreme that there is this demand on dumbing things down because we think this is how you get a wider audience. And I think that... that I, that's a, I feel that is a, a huge risk. And a lot of people are afraid of having text on the wall because I think people don't... But they think this is just... If you don't do this anymore, why would we even... You know, why would art... Or, or culture be relevant because mm. then it goes into entertainment and I think we'll have that so much in the world mm. that it's, it's not... And I think this is a really fine line and mm. I, do, I don't think that, that we're in the museum world at the moment kind of sometimes know where it flips into, you know, all this festival. Everybody, everything has to be a festival and you just <laughs> think, well... 
Welcome to Sydney. <laughs> yeah, but it's the same in London. I mean, everything in our in the South Bank is a festival. Yeah. I mean, which is not. It doesn't mean you know. Of course, it's it's important to have this character of bringing people in, have free space. The South Bank is one of the wonderf- most wonderful places because it has this mm. free space. But on the other hand, you need to in- you need to believe in your audience, and you need to have a special space for art. This idea that you can bump into it. Fine, you can bump into it, but so what? What does it? What happens then? It's that what then moment that I think is so important for art. It actually shifts us into another dimension. It triggers something. It makes us look at the world differently. And if it just becomes part of a sort of everyday kind of melange of whatever it is—food, fashion, music, blah—then how can art actually deliver something a little bit more? I'm totally on Stephanie's side on this one, and I think my panel. I think that's probably it. I think we have to wrap up now. But thank you very much. Please thank my panel members. And above all, uh, above all, see the Biennale and uh, and Grace and Perry at the MCA. Thank you.